Well, we're going to be in Ephesians 3 tonight. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. We've been going through Ephesians. One of the challenges of limited Monday nights is we can't do every verse of the whole book. So we're skipping ahead a little bit to wrap up chapter 3 tonight so that we can get through parts of 4 through 6 by the time uh, we get to Christmas. So that's where we're going to be tonight. Uh, So feel free to turn there in your Bibles or on your phones. James says that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And there's many women and men throughout history who have believed that passage to a new level. They've and almost, to some extent, have put God to the test and said, we're going to pray big things, we're going to pray bold things, and we're going to believe that God's going to answer. And you and I can think of many individuals who've prayed big and bold things, people that we would call a, a prayer warrior. But as I think through history, there's one man who rises to the top for me. His name's George Mueller. You heard of George before? He was a Prussian-born evangelist and missionary who served in England during a large part of the 19th century, the 1800s. And what he's most known for is his ministry to the orphans in Bristol, England. Throughout the course of his life, he, his family, his staff, they cared for over 10,000 orphans in England before orphanages and orphan care was really a a thing. But what Mueller did was completely countercultural. Not once did he ask for money. Not once did he ask for a donation. Not once did he ask for financial support. Not once did he receive government funding. Everything that he received to operate his orphanages, he received through the power of prayer. He was a meticulous journaler, and he recorded over 50,000 specific answers to prayer throughout the course of his lifetime. We could spend the rest of our night reading Mueller journals and being encouraged by the incredible prayers that God answered. And not only did he ask God for material, for physical uh, provision, for protection, but he also prayed spiritual things, big things for his kids, for his orphans. I just want to read one of his prayers that he records. This is dated May 26th, 1860. Day after day, Year after year, by the help of God, we labor in prayer for the spiritual benefit of the orphans under our care. These are supplications, which have been for 24 years brought before the Lord concerning them and have been abundantly answered in former years in the conversion of hundreds from among them. We have also had repeated seasons in which Within a short time, or even all at once, many of the orphans were converted. Such a season we had about three years ago, when within a few days, about 60 were brought to believe in the Lord Jesus. And such seasons we have had again twice during the last year. The first was in July, when the Spirit of God wrought so mightily in one school of 120 girls, as that very many, more than half, were brought under deep concern about the salvation of their souls." This blessed and mighty work of the Holy Spirit cannot be traced to a particular cause. It was, however, a most precious answer to prayer. Not only did Mueller bow before the Lord and ask for provision, for finances, even for food, for milk for his kids, he begged that God would save their souls. 
and God was faithful to answer his prayer. But Mueller's not the only prayer warrior that you and I know. As I read the New Testament, I'm convinced that the Apostle Paul was just as much of a prayer warrior. Why? Because we get to read his prayers. When we read the, the prayers of the Apostle Paul, they are so rich, they're so deep, they're, they're so profound, they're so caring beyond the language that you and I even often use in our prayers. We get a picture of his prayer life through how he prays within his letters. And tonight, we get to learn from Paul in his school of prayer on how to pray for one another, how to pray for others from one of the most profound prayers that we can find in Scripture, the end of Ephesians 3. But for us to understand where Paul's coming from, we have to remember the context of this letter. Where's Paul writing this letter from? Anybody remember? Where does Paul find himself? He's in prison. And last I checked, first century Roman prisons were not the Hilton. They were not posh. He didn't even have his needs provided for him. Likely, he had to come up with his own food. Dirty, gross, disgusting. His cellmate was the cell rat. I mean, this would have been a terrible way for him to live. And Paul even highlights his suffering. He highlights his imprisonment in 3 verse 13. Look at that with me. We're looking at the section right after this this morning, but look at verse 13. Paul says this, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Pause there. Paul's giving us an insight into what's going on. He's saying, don't, don't worry, but remember, I'm, I'm suffering. Don't lose heart over it, but I'm suffering. In other words, Paul's saying that I'm in jail. So let's say you and I are in Paul's shoes, and we're writing this letter to a church that we care deeply about, and you say, I'm, I'm suffering, shorthand for saying I'm in prison. If the next paragraph is a prayer, what's it going to be? Easy. I'm in jail. Would you pray for me? Would you ask that God will deliver me? Would you pray that God will work this out so that I can be rescued, that I, I can be justified, that I can be set free? See, when I'm suffering, when you're suffering, what's the first thing that we do? We pray for ourselves, or maybe you're holier than me, and I'll text, you'll text someone else and ask them to pray for you. So that's what I would expect Paul to do. If he's going to mention his suffering, mention his imprisonment, he's going to, he's going to say, pray for me. That's not what he does. Look at verse 14. I'll read our whole text through verse 19. Because I'm suffering for this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what's the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I hope I'm not the only one that finds this ironic. that in the midst of his suffering, Paul says, I'm not asking you to pray for me. I'm going to pray for you. And we learn a lot about prayer through Paul tonight. So as we enter into the school of prayer, Paul tonight, I consider this to be a three-point prayer. Paul uses the same word, the same Greek word, hina, it means that or so that, three times 
in this text. It signifies three different points, three different segments of his prayer. So it's nice. It's a three-point prayer, easy for us to remember tonight. But before we get into the points, we've got to look at those first two verses. It's Paul's intro to his prayer, verse 14 and verse 15 and verse 14. He says, for this reason, I bow my knee before the Father. We know what he's saying because we use the same, uh, we use the same metaphor today to bow our knees in, in prayer. But it actually wasn't a common way to talk about prayer in the literature, even in scripture. It literally means to pray with a bent knee. I would expect Paul to say, I'm praying for you and this is what I'm praying, but it's not what he says. To pray with a bent knee is a reminder of Paul's humble posture. Talking to someone with absolute power, absolute authority, it's a posture of humility. Paul's prostrate, he's face, gra- face down on the ground praying to the Lord. And this isn't a casual pre-meal prayer. This isn't one of those text message prayers that we send up when we find ourselves in the midst of a crisis. No, this is a deliberate, continual, focused, heartfelt, pleading prayer. And then he says, from whom every family on heaven and earth is named. There's two different ways to translate that phrase, every family. You could translate it like the ESV, or you could translate it from whom the whole family on heaven and earth is named. I think that fits grammatically a little bit better. The, the Greek, uh, the word uh, patria, which is translated family, is actually singular, it's not plural. But it also fits theologically. Think about it this way. When someone is adopted into a family, they receive a new name. They receive a new last name. And it's not just a name, it's an identity, that they're part of the family, they've been adopted into the family, and nothing can change that. The same thing happens when we're adopted into God's family. Paul talked about that in Ephesians chapter 1. We get a new name. We have a new last name. We have a new identity that changes the entire course of our life. And Paul is saying that as a family, we're unified with the same last name, the whole family. We are together children of God. And if you read chapter 2, chapter 3 before the section, Paul's point is clear. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, whether you're anything in between, we are all one by faith in Christ. It's a beautiful picture of the unity. We're one family with one last name. So that's how Paul begins his prayer. So with that introduction, now it's important for us to dive into the content of his prayer. If my prayer and and your prayer life for other people is not enhanced by our time in the text tonight, either I've made a big mistake or you've fallen asleep. So let's hope that neither are true. Look at verse 16 in the first half of 17. Here's what Paul prays. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. Here's the first request. It's a request for strengthening with power. Isaiah talked about that Greek word for power a couple weeks ago. It's the word dunamis, but he asked that we'll be strengthened in our inner being. That word strengthened is often used to talk about physical strength, but Paul's clear. He's not talking about physical external strength here. 
He's praying that we find spiritual strength in our inner being. In the next verse, he uses the word heart. He's asking for spiritual strength. That's our first principle tonight. Pray for spiritual strength. Pray for spiritual strength. Here's what Paul's saying. Spiritual strength, inner perseverance are of far greater value than physical strength and physical fortitude. But I wonder if our prayers reflect that same priority. When we pray for ourselves or we pray for other people, what consumes most of our prayer time? The external or the internal? When we pray for other people and we go through our prayer list, how much of our prayer list is, this person is sick, would you help them? This person has a bad job, would you give them a new job? This person has a, a challenging relationship with a coworker, with a friend, would you bring healing to that relationship? Maybe we do the same thing in our lives. God, I'm not feeling well, will, will you heal me? Or work's just been a bear lately, will you bring a resolution to this work conflict? We pray for externals. Paul's not saying those aren't important, Here, here's what he's saying. That praying for our inner self, praying for others' inner self, their spiritual self, is a far greater value than physical strength. If we're going to pray, if we're tired, we can pray for rest. But more than that, we have to pray that God will give us spiritual strength in the midst of exhaustion. Yes, we can pray for healing. We can ask that God will heal. But in the midst of it, we pray that God will keep their eyes laser-focused on him in the midst of the trial. Yes, we can pray for relief and for peace, but then we pray that their faith will be strengthened in the midst of the trial. We pray for spiritual strength. But how does that happen? How are we strengthened with power? Paul answers that in the next line. He says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I love this. Time for a Greek lesson. The word dwell is the Greek word kata oikeo. Oikeo means to live or to dwell. The noun form oikos means house. But Paul doesn't just use the simple form oikeo. He uses kata oikeo. Kata is a preposition, so it makes a compound word. Kata means down or from. So when you put them together, kata oikeo is like an intense form of living or dwelling. Think of it this way. 22-year-old 20, Central Wisconsin native graduates from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She, top of her class, gets a tech degree, and she has any job available to her across the country and decides her top priority is finding a job where she can work remote because she wants to travel. She and her beloved VW camper van, they take a position with Amazon, and she works remote and begins traveling the country. Works in Montana in July, Colorado in August, wants to see the fall colors in Maine in September and October, and then meanders down to Florida to winter there because who wants to enjoy the frozen tundra this time of year? But partway through her first year of her new job, there's this relationship that gets rekindled with an old boyfriend from high school. He's back in Wisconsin. And things move rather quickly, and she moves back home, gets married, buys a house, and has kids. What do we describe? How do we describe what she just did? She did what? She settled down. That is literally what kata oikeo means, to settle down. It's not a Airbnb. It's not a rental property. 
It's not a camper van. It is a permanent home. That's what Jesus does in our hearts. That when we turn from our sin and we trust in Christ for our salvation, Jesus takes up permanent residence in our heart. He dwells in and with us. And this isn't the first time that Paul uses the dwell imagery analogy, even in Ephesians. If you're in Ephesians 3, go back one chapter to Ephesians 2 and look at verse 19. Paul says this, So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There's the household language built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. So there's a construction analogy in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now remember, Paul, Paul isn't just a good Jew. He's a great Jew. He is well-versed in the entire Old Testament and knows it inside and out. So when Paul uses language like dwell and temple, that's not an accident. Because in the Old Testament, the temple was the manifest presence of God among the people. The tabernacle, which then was built into the temple, was where God dwelled. God resided. So when Paul's talking about a temple, there's clear Old Testament imagery. He's talking about God's presence. But then what does he say in our text? That you, you are being built into a holy temple in the Lord. That we are God's temple. We're being built into a dwelling place together by the Spirit. But I love what Paul says. He doesn't say that the building project is completed. He says that you are being built. It's a construction project that's begun now, but it's not going to be completed until eternity. This is what we call the already not yet tension, where we're looking ahead to the day when we will be with Jesus physically, visibly. That's what John highlights in Revelation 21, verse 3. He sees this vision, he hears a word from the throne and says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. I will dwell with them and they will be my people. That's what we're looking forward to. The building project that started now in our hearts will be completed in the new heaven and the new earth when we get back to Eden. Just as God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, he'll walk with us. He will physically make his home with us, a flawless, unhindered, perfect relationship with God. But until then, we pray that Christ will dwell in our hearts through faith. Okay, but back to our text in chapter 3. What does that mean, that Christ dwells in our hearts? Again, to dwell is for Christ to make his home our heart. It's a continual and daily surrender to Christ, our Savior and our King. I'd be hard-pressed to find a better picture, a better analogy of Christ dwelling in our hearts than a short story that first came out in 1986, written by Robert Munger. This is called My Heart, Christ's Home. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read a couple sections, probably about five minutes worth. One evening, I invited Jesus into my heart. What an entrance he made. 
It wasn't spectacular, emotional, but it was real. Something happened at the very center of my life. He came into the darkness of my heart and he turned on the light. He built a fire in the fireplace. He banished the chill. He started music where there'd been silence. He filled the emptiness with his loving fellowship. I've never once regretted opening the door to Jesus, and I never will. In the joy of this new relationship, I said to Jesus, Lord, I want my heart to be yours. I want you to settle here and be perfectly at home. Everything that I have belongs to you, so let me show you around. The first room was the study, the library. In my home, this room of the mind is a very small room with thick walls, but it's an important room in a sense that it's the control room of the house. He entered with me and he looked around at the books on the bookcase, the magazines on the table, the pictures on the walls. But as I followed his gaze, I became uncomfortable. Strangely, I hadn't felt self-conscious about this before, but now that his eyes were looking at these things, I was embarrassed. Some books were there that his eyes were too pure to behold. On the table, there were a few magazines that a Christian had no business reading. And as for the pictures on the walls, the imaginations and thoughts of the heart, some of these were shameful. Red-faced, I turned to him and said, Master, I know this room needs to be cleaned up and made over. Will you help me make it the way it ought to be? Certainly, he said. I'm glad to help you. First of all, take all of the things that you're reading and looking at which are not helpful, pure, good and true, and throw them out. Now put on the empty shelves the books of the Bible. Fill the library with scripture and meditate on it day and night. As for the pictures on the walls, you'll have difficulty controlling these images, but I have something that will help. And he gave me a full-size portrait of himself. Hang this centrally, he said, on the wall of your mind. From the study, we went to the dining room. And from the dining room, we went to the living room. This room, it was intimate and comfortable. I liked it. Fireplace, chairs, sofa, quiet atmosphere. He said, this is indeed a delightful room. Let us come here often. It's secluded and quiet. We can fellowship together. Well, as a young Christian, I was thrilled. I I couldn't think of anything I'd rather do than have a few minutes with Christ in close companionship. And he promised, I'll be here every morning. Meet me here and we'll start the day together. So morning after morning, I'd come downstairs to the living room. He would take a book of the Bible from the bookshelf. We would open it and read it together. He would unfold to me the wonder of God's saving truths. My heart sang as he shared the love and grace he had toward me. These were wonderful times. However, little by little, under the pressure of many responsibilities, this time began to be shortened. Why? I'm not sure. I thought I was too busy to spend regular time with Christ. This wasn't intentional, you understand. It just happened that way. Finally, not only was the time shortened, but I began to miss days now and then. Urgent matters would crowd out the quiet times of conversation with Jesus. I remember one morning rushing downstairs, eager to be on my way. I passed the living room and noticed the door was open. Looking in, I saw fire in the fireplace and Jesus was sitting there. Suddenly, in my dismay, I thought to myself, He is my guest. I invited him into my heart. He has come as my savior and friend, yet I'm neglecting him. So I stopped, turned, and hesitantly went in. With a downcast glance, I said, Master, forgive me. Have you been here all of these mornings? Yes, he said. 
I told you I'd be here every morning to meet with you. Remember, I love you. I've redeemed you at a great cost. I value your friendship. Even if you can't keep the quiet time for your own sake, do it for mine. The truth that Christ desires my companionship, that he wants me to be with him and waits for me, has done more to transform my quiet time with God than any other single fact. Don't let Christ wait alone in the living room of your heart, but every day find a time with your Bible and prayer that you may be together with him. One day I found him waiting for me at the door. An arresting look was in his eye. As I entered, he said to me, there's an odor in the house. Something's dead. It's upstairs in the closet. As soon as he said this, my heart sunk. I knew what he was talking about. There was a small closet up there on the hall landing, just a few square feet. In the closet behind lock and key, I had one or two little personal things that I didn't want anyone to know about. Certainly, I didn't want Jesus to see them, but I knew there were dead and rotting things left over from my old life, but I wanted them for myself. I was afraid to admit they were there. Reluctantly, I went up with him. As we mounted the stairs, the odor became stronger and stronger, and he, he pointed at the door. But I was angry. That's the only way I can put it. I'd given him access to the library, the dining room, the living room, the workroom, and now he was asking me about a little two-by-four closet. I said to myself, this is too much. I am not going to give him the key. Well, Jesus said, reading my thoughts, if you think I'm going to stay up here on the second floor with that smell, you're mistaken. I'm going to go out on the porch. Then I saw him start down the stairs. When someone comes to know and love Jesus, the worst thing that can happen is to sense withdrawing in his fellowship. I had to give in. I'll give you the key, I said sadly, but you'll have to open the closet and clean it out. I don't have the strength to do it. Just give me the key, he said. Authorize me to take care of that closet and I will. With trembling fingers, I, I passed the key to him. He took it, walked over to the door, opened it, entered and took out all of the putrefying stuff that was rotting in there, and he threw it away. Then he cleaned the closet and painted it. It was all done in a moment's time. Oh, what victory and release to have that dead thing out of my life. Things are different since Jesus has settled down and made his home in my heart. What about you? Have you let Jesus in? We let Jesus in by faith, by believing that he died to pay for my sin. And by repenting, the power of the Spirit, turning away from that old way of life and making Jesus king of our life, of our house. If you haven't done that, it's the most important decision you can make. Don't leave tonight without knowing that you've said yes to Jesus. But if you do, do know Christ, if you have let him in, I'm guessing there's something from this story that resonated with you tonight. How often is Jesus ready and prepared to meet with us? And I say, sorry, Netflix is calling me tonight. Gotta go. Or, yeah, that two and five football team we call the Packers they're playing this afternoon. I think I'm going to watch them instead because that'll be worth my time. Or I'm just not feeling it today, Jesus. I think I need some sleep. I, I've got to set that alarm a half hour later tomorrow. 
half hour later sounds good to me, but I don't like mornings, so it's true. I, I, wonder, I wonder how many of us miss out on a relationship with Christ because we have the wrong priorities. And Jesus is eager and willing to meet with us, to have a relationship with us. I wonder how many of us have just uncovered a fraction of that relationship because our priorities are out of line. Praying, Jesus, make your home in my heart is one of the best things we can pray. Jesus, make your home in Fritz's heart. Make your home in Pancho's heart. Make your home in Johnny's heart is one of the best things that we can pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, Paul further nuances our relationship with Jesus in the next segment of his prayer. Look at the second half of verse 17. He says this, that you, there's our hinna again, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what's the breadth, the length, the height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Let me pause there. Did you catch that oxymoron? It's right there in the Greek text too. To know love that surpasses knowledge? How can you ask to know something that is unknowable? Doesn't even make sense. It's because God's love, Jesus' love for us is so great we can't comprehend it. We can't understand it fully, but we certainly can understand it accurately. Because Paul uses four words to talk about the, the bigness of Jesus' love, the breadth of his love. It's a picture of the whole earth. And the, the width or the length of his love, it's, uh, it's a time word reaching from eternity to eternity and the height of his love all the way to God's throne and the depth of his love reaches all the way down into the depth of my dirtiest sin. There is no limit to his love. There is no period of history that's exempt from it. There is no one that's beyond it. His love is beyond our comprehension. It's beyond what we can define. It's beyond what we can experience fully. So we pray that we might comprehend something we can't comprehend, that we might know something that we can't even know. And that's our second principle tonight. Pray for spiritual comprehension. Specifically, comprehension of his love. I hope that doesn't discourage you. I hope that encourages you. Because the more we experience his love, there's not a limit to it. See, we could, we could learn something new about Jesus' love for us every day and never understand it fully. We could experience his love in a new way every day and never experience it fully. We could reflect his love in a new way to the world around us every single day and never reflect it fully. His love is so near to us, yet so beyond us all at the same time. I love how scripture talks about the father and the son's love for you. Just think of these verses. Jesus said this in John 15, this is my command, love one another as I have loved you you. There is no greater love than this, than someone lay down his life for his friend. How about Romans 5, 6 through 8? 
while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for, ungodly, for the ungodly. For someone will maybe die for a righteous person. Though for a very good person, someone might dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How about Romans 8, starting in verse 35? In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How about 1 John 3 verse 1? See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Or Ephesians 1 verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through his spirit, according to the good pleasure of his will. You are more loved by Jesus than you could ever imagine. This is love. This love is something that we comprehend, but it's not something we just comprehend and ask to comprehend on an individual level. This love is something that we comprehend, Paul says, together with all the saints. Did he catch that in our text? See, our relationship with Jesus, our relationship with Jesus' love is not just something that we enjoy individually. We enjoy it together. Think of it this way. Um, two years ago, I went to my 10-year high school class reunion. And if that doesn't date me, then nothing will. You can do the math later. But I went to a small Christian high school which means I had 10 people in my graduating class. And if you think that sounds small, it was, but it was the biggest class that the school ever had. So it was a small school. But 10 years out, one of my classmates um, decided she wanted to put together a class reunion for my class and the class that was a year ahead of mine. Um, and she got a Facebook group together. And I'm going to be honest with you, I didn't want to go. Like this is, this is just one of those things that I feel like I have to do. So I'm going to go, but I'm going to stay as long as I have to, and then I'm going to sneak out. And I got there, and <laughs> we had so much fun. Uh, I loved it. I'm so glad that I went. And you know exactly what happened. We start telling stories. And as we start telling stories, I remember things I'd forgotten. I remember people I'd forgotten. I remember stories I'd forgotten. And one story leads to another, and Two hours goes by just like that. See, if I would have tried to remember my high school experience by myself, it would have been a lonely experience, and it wouldn't have lasted two hours. But because we remember together, our experience was enhanced in community. See, the same is true of our relationship with Christ. Our experience is enhanced in community. We experience his love together, not just individually. And when we... When we experience his love together, one plus one doesn't have to equal two. It can equal exponential growth because our experience is enhanced in community. It's one of the reasons that we do life groups. It's one of the reasons that we don't just listen to a sermon and leave. It's more than just applying a message and trying to do better in life. It's knowing Jesus together. So growing in our love for Christ, our understanding of him together, not just individual, but together. It's a gift that he's given to us. So first we pray for spiritual strength. 
that Christ makes a home in our hearts. Second, we pray for spiritual comprehension of the uncomprehendable, Jesus' love. But then third, we pray for the filling of the fullness of God. That's our final principle tonight. Pray for spiritual fullness. Pray for spiritual fullness. Get your finger back in the text. The last part of verse 19, Paul prays this, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Hmm. You hear the word play in English, right? Filled with fullness. The same word play is there in the Greek. That you may be filled, play ra'o, with all the fullness, play roma. Similar word. Same word family, once a, now one's a verb. But when those two words are put together in the Greek text, it, it often speaks of a, of a completeness. It works like this, that we may be filled up to the level of God. It's an absence of any gaps, Now, we'll never attain to God's level of glory, of splendor, of otherness. He's God and we're not. Yet God is still our goal. He's our gold standard. And within the context, being filled with the fullness of God happens when Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. That when we understand his love, we're filled with this fullness. But to really understand what Paul's getting at, I need to flip over to Colossians chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but I want you to listen to Colossians 1 verse 19. I want you to listen for some words that maybe we had in our text. Paul writes this, For in him, in him, in him is Jesus, in Jesus all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That word dwell ring a bell? It should. It's the same word in our text, not just oikeo, kata oikeo, to dwell deeply, to settle down. Fullness, same word, pleroma. So in Jesus, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So if we ask the question, what is the fullness of God? We're actually asking the wrong question. What's a better question? Who? is the fullness of God. Paul answers that in Colossians 1. Jesus is the fullness of God. The fullness of God dwelling 100% God, 100% man in the incarnation, in Jesus the God-man taking our form and our flesh. Don't forget the temple imagery. God's presence within the temple in the Old Testament. Then Jesus comes along in John chapter 2, He's talking to the Pharisees that are right outside Herod's temple. And he says, watch this. I'll destroy this temple and raise it up in three days. And the Pharisees are like, what are you talking about? That's impossible. He wasn't talking about that temple. He was talking about the temple of his body. See, all of the Old Testament temple imagery, tabernacle, that's fulfilled in the person of Jesus, the manifest presence of God on earth, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, fully God, fully man, our Savior. So Jesus is the fullness of the glory of God. But that same fullness dwells in us. You catch that. Paul prays to the church in Ephesus that we will be filled with the fullness of God. The same fullness that dwells in Jesus now dwells 
in believers in Christ. That when Christ dwells in our hearts through faith, that when we know the love of Christ, we also are filled with the fullness of God. Christ dwells in us. Therefore, by extension, we are his temple. If we know Christ, we are the manifest presence of Jesus to the world. We experience and reflect more and more fullness of God the more we look like Christ. So maybe a a great way to paraphrase the last request that Paul makes is, may you, may they, may I look more like Jesus today. But how do we do that? Well, I know what my immediate answer is. Okay, if I want to look more like Jesus, then I've got to read the Bible. I've got to pray. I've got to evangelize. I've got to serve. I've got to wash people's feet. There's all these things I have to do, and then I make this long to-do list of how I can be a good Christian and be like Jesus. Is that what Paul does in our text? No. Paul reminds us being is more important than doing. Certainly, being precedes doing. When Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus, He's not saying, help them endure persecution and and may they read their Bible more, may they pray more, may they exercise their spiritual gift, help them be generous. He prays none of that. He prays that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. Paul understands (laughs) that the way that we live begins here. That we start by dwelling with Jesus before we ever think of all the things we need to do for Jesus. One of the most powerful things that we can pray for one another, for ourselves, is that we'll look more like Christ by spending time with Christ. You know, I hope that this text transforms the way that we pray because Jesus' love transforms us from the inside out. Yeah, we can pray for specifics. We can pray for physical healing and and pray that God will work through our jobs and provide for our needs. But even more than that, may we bow our knees before God for internal spiritual realities that God will transform us from the inside out. When we grow in our love for Jesus, he transforms every room, every aspect of our lives. Because we together are being built up into his temple. See, Jesus isn't just in my living room. He's in our living room. And that's where our short story falls short. Because our relationship with Jesus is not just personal. It's together. We get to experience his love together. We together are the temple. Therefore, our relationship with Jesus, growing to reflect Jesus, experiencing his fullness is something that we do together, not just individually. We're a family, and we are on this journey together. His presence, his love is here. Not just to be experienced individually, but to be enjoyed together. What would happen if as a young adult family, we pray for one another like this? Let's find out. Let's pray. Father, um, sometimes we finish a text like this and we don't even know what to say. 
I feel a sense of inadequacy, that the way that I pray for myself, the way I pray for others is not adequate. It's not sufficient. There's room for improvement. Father, teach us to pray like Paul, who on his knees pleaded with you for the spiritual growth, the spiritual understanding of his brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, may we do, may we do the same. So I want to finish tonight just by praying this prayer over our young adult family. Father, we, we come to you tonight, our Father, from whom we've been adopted, that according to the riches of your glory, that you may grant this young adult family to be strengthened with power through your Spirit in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell together in our hearts through faith, And that our young adult family being rooted and grounded in love, that we may have the strength to comprehend with all of the saints what's the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that together we may be filled with the fullness of God, that we might look like Christ. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to his power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.